come to our fourth theme then in the book of Proverbs, thinking together this evening of leadership. And we're all familiar with this theme of leadership, either from leading or from being led, from the front or from being at the back. God has appointed leaders in every sphere of our lives as the explanation of the shorter catechism on the fifth commandment tells us. The command, honor your father and mother, includes more than our parents. It includes teachers, our work boss, our prime minister, those who have positions of authority over us. In marriage, as we've been praying, the husband is to lead and lead by example. In the home, the father is to lead and lead with grace and compassion as we were singing. In the church, elders and deacons are to lead as we've been thinking as shepherds of God's people. In the nation, rulers are elected to lead. And so we at this very moment in our church service this evening are either leading or being led. And some of us perhaps are experienced both. We may be a leader in one sphere and a follower in another sphere. In the home, perhaps, we are called to be a leader. But in the church, maybe, and the nation, we are being led. In work, you might be a manager. But in your sports team, you are more than happy not to be the captain, having to explain another defeat to the sports journalist from the Arts Chronicle. Being a good leader, all of us agree, whether in our home, in our work, in our community, in our team at work or or, or sports or in church, is difficult. We see its difficulty in others or we experience the difficulty in ourselves. Owen Farrell at times was not leading his team well yesterday, too emotional, too uncontrolled, and we've been there. And so sages have reflected on this function over the centuries. And they've identified attributes and qualities which should mark good leaders. And many studies have been written and books done on this subject. Thomas Fuller, for example, recognized that wisdom was needed by leaders for their task. He said, if you command wisely... You'll be obeyed cheerfully, possibly most of the time. Some wise decisions are not always acceptable to everyone. D.L. Moody, the evangelist, saw the importance of delegation for a leader to survive. And so he said, I'd rather get 10 men to do the job than to do the job of 10 men. And that's a, a good principle and a wise principle. Fervor and energy is another mark which should characterize leaders. Lord Beveridge recognized this, but he, I think, rightly lamented, and it's something perhaps that we should reflect on within congregations, but it was frequently absent from leaders, and he gives the reason why. He said the trouble in modern democracy is that men do not approach to leadership until they have lost the desire to lead anyone. 
And sometimes we have a misunderstanding of the biblical word elder. We interpret it as older when the man has lost the fervor and the energy needed for the job. A further trait which has been identified of good leaders is that they're in touch with the convictions of the people that they lead. They know the congregation, the community, their team at work. The well-known words of a French revolutionary as he pushed his way through the crowd I've been reflecting on, and to illustrate this point, he said, let me pass. I have to follow them. I am their leader. He wanted to know their troubles, their point, what they were excited about and troubled by. A good leader considers carefully the commitments which she or he asks from the people, and and maybe this is something I, I need to reflect more on, the balance between involving people and overburdening people. One writer says a leader doesn't hesitate before he, he's a leader who doesn't hesitate before he sends his nation into battle is not fit to be a leader. A good leader usually acts positively. We're to be realistic. We're to weigh up situations. We are to be aware of the, the downside, the negatives and things. But generally, a good leader, a man of faith and courage, acts positively and keeps up the spirits of God's people. One writer says, illustrating this point, no general in the midst of a battle has a great discussion about what he's going to do if defeated. They think of victory. They consider adjustments that are needed to secure it. But while leaders are up front, encouraging, setting an example, making important decisions, they are often most effective when least conspicuous. One writer says, and there's, there's strains of truth in this, a leader is best when she is neither seen nor heard. Not so good when she is adored and glorified. Worst when she is hated and despised. But of a good leader, when her work is done, her aim fulfilled, the people will say, we did this ourselves. And that's a hard skill to master. Yes, there's times when we are unjustly hated and rejected. But there is a skill in 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 allowing the people to to buy into the idea and on reflection say, we did this ourselves. And so we come to this subject thought over, considered, studied, analyzed. The nations have done this. The Persians wrote screeds about this and have this this really uh, interesting uh, uh, emphasis uh, on leadership in their, in their memorable statement. Persians developed this proverb titled, True Confidence of a Leader. And it's, it goes like this. He who knows not, 
and knows not that he knows not is a fool. Shun him. He who knows not and knows that he knows not is a child. Teach him. And this is wonderful wisdom for, for the elders. He who knows and knows not that he knows is asleep. Wake him. He who knows and knows that he knows is a leader. Follow him. The book of Proverbs, written by a king, includes such useful direction for leaders, for potential leaders, for those being led. And there are four important features of leadership mentioned in these wonderful chapters that we are considering, which, which are, 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 are different from, from the, the traits that we've, that we've thought of so far, culled from, from the wisdom of, of earth. Here are traits which the, the Bible considers important in leaders. They're not the only ones, but they are, they are dominant ones in, in the book of Proverbs. And I think you would all suggest the first one that... Oh, they're there. Okay, okay, there's no surprise then. Okay, <laughs> there is, right. You, you are all going to suggest the first one then because you can see it on the screen. Okay, right, humbleness, uh, chapter 21, uh, verse 1. And this is a great one for us to, to learn. And, and, and these Proverbs here, Sabbath evening, is going to require your grey matter uh, to be operational. Okay, so here, here's this one. The king's heart is a stream of water. And we thought about this on, on Wednesday evening. In the hand of the Lord, he turns it wherever he will. And, and this, this proverb should constrain humility. And leaders. There's, there's a greater than the leader. And it's, it's the Lord's purpose that is being fulfilled even through the leader. This verse puts everything into perspective for leaders, for husbands, for fathers, for elders, for deacons, for managers in the workplace, for kings. Leaders are thought to be autocratic, to make choices by themselves or con by consulting others, but they take the final decision. Leaders, managers, elders endued with God-given authority, they make decisions. One church member, not this church, one church member said to me last week that the elders of his church took decisions prayerfully and thoughtfully, even though in his opinion they did not always get it right. But they gave leadership. They made decisions, and that is their role. And we may disagree at times with the decision of our leader about diesel cars, wind farms, minimum wage, interest rates, but it's his job to make decisions and give leadership. But this proverb brings the role of leader, the position of leader, into proper perspective. Even the most powerful leader, Biden, even the most unpredictable leader, King John Ung, is under the hand of the Lord. The Lord, the supreme ruler, guides the thoughts, the plans, the strategies, the successes, 
the failures of leaders. Pharaoh and his enslavement of Israel. Nebuchadnezzar and his capture of Jerusalem. Cyrus and his returning of the exiles to Israel are all fulfilling the plan of God. And we can see it. They chose, unaware and unacknowledging of the sovereign power of God. Pilate, in his arrogance and trumped-upness, said to Jesus, Do you not know that I have power to release you or to crucify you? And Jesus put him in his place. You've got no power except it be given to you from God because the the heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord. Even leaders like Pilate, backed by the mighty power of Rome, was under the rule of heaven. And his decision to send Jesus to the cross, unjust though it was, sinful though it was, was fulfilling the wise, the loving, the gracious, the eternal plan of heaven. Charles Bridges comments on this proverb. He says it describes God's uncontrollable sway upon the most absolute of all wills, the king's heart. The proverb employs a gripping illustration, doesn't it, of this sovereignty of God over all leaders, our manager in our workplace, the elders, the deacons, our prime minister. It's the image of a river. A river begins, as we know, like a little spring. Then it grows through other rivers flowing into it. It twists and turns by the contours of the rocks and of the landscapes. And so the thoughts of a king, of a father, of a husband, of a teacher, his plans, projects, they begin small. Then they grow into decisions. And God guides the journey of those thoughts and the decisions at every turn. To go to battle or to refrain from battle. To hold an election or no election. To promote a policy or to refrain from it. To build another factory or to make do with the two already operating. To go on holiday to Spain or to France. The hatred of Pharaoh. The ambition of Sennacherib. The sleeplessness of Ahasuerus. The taxation by the emperor. The Lord's hand was directing every choice. And so it humbles us as leaders. We're not ultimately in control. Our well-researched, our well-thought-out plans, our impulsive choices to buy an apartment in Bulgaria, our sinful decision to marry an unbeliever, They're all part of the plan of God. If you're here and not yet a Christian, this proverb humbles you too. You cannot become a Christian any time you want. You need the working of God in your heart to turn you to the Lord Jesus Christ. 
to give you that repentance and that faith in the Lord Jesus. Ask God to turn your heart towards Jesus. While this proverb humbles us, it assures us that every decision is in God's plan under his hand. The decision of Joel not to go to Carrick, the decision of Nathan not to go to Galway, the decision of Warren to go to Galway, the decision of not to build their own meeting house, the government's view on abortion and immigration, all of these decisions, some of which we may disagree with or or not understand, they're in the hand of the Lord. So let us pray for our King. Let us pray for our Prime Minister making decisions at this time to seek to win an election that his heart, which is in the Lord's hand, will be turned to good projects. Humbleness is a characteristic of good leaders. Secondly, thoroughness is a characteristic of good leaders. Chapter 25, verse 3 says, It is the glory of God to conceal things, but the glory of kings is to search things out. As the heavens for height and the earth for depth, so is the heart, so the heart of kings is unsearchable. And this is a a fascinating proverb, and and we might want to use uh, the the metaphors of an iceberg and of an empty cup. Here is God like the iceberg, so great is he, such is the depths of his being, his abilities, his ways, that he's got to conceal things. We we just see the tip of the iceberg in the supreme leader, so such is the, the vastness of his knowledge, power, and plans. But the king searches things out. The king does research, and that is the second mark of a good leader. Thoroughness. The glory of kings is to search things out. God conceals his purpose and his ways because we cannot understand them fully. Our minds, our souls, our abilities, even in regeneration, are incapable of understanding the ways of God. And so we do not know why many things happen in our lives because we cannot handle the reasons and details involved such It's the depths of the plans of God. But in contrast to God concealing things is the role of leaders to investigate things, to find things out, to research issues before they make decisions. And such will be the depth of the research that wise leaders will pursue. Such will be the amount of data that they accumulate. Such will be what is undergirding the decision of of good leaders within the church, uh, within the the, the nation. That's the end of the verse says, the heart of kings or leaders is unsearchable. They will have amassed all this data, all this understanding, all this information, much of which many times cannot always be shared with other people. So the heart of the kings, 
by their diligent research of a subject before they take a decision is to the, the people unsearchable. We'll not be able to understand all the science, all the mass, all the calculations involved behind the decision of a good leader. Some policies, decisions, and actions of leaders are inscrutable. Sometimes the public are let into the reasoning behind some of those decisions. Sometimes the opposition, the public, or journalists demand more information for a clearer understanding of the reasons behind the decision. And and we're given a 1,200-page document which no one reads. The heart of the leader is unsearchable. Their glory is to search things out. There's a place for challenging decisions, for requesting more data. But as this proverb reminds us, there is also a place for acceptance, for awe, for wonder. Who among us knows exactly what's going on in Ukraine or in Israel? There are sensitive details which the government knows about and is acting on. We see the surface of many issues, but there are great depths hidden to us. What reaction, the proverb asks, do we have as we consider the heavens stretching into an unseeable distance? What reaction do we have when we look down into the depth which stretches down into the depths of the ocean? It's a sense of awe, of lostness, of mystery. And so sometimes when good leaders make decisions in the church or in the nation, not on biblical decisions, but inscrutable decisions, we're to bow our heads and acknowledge that they have done their research and they know better. Sometimes in our church session or synod, decisions on issues are made and we cannot disclose all the details, and neither should we. But the mark of a good leader, which gives confidence to the congregation and the denomination, is that they engage in diligent research into the issue before the decision is taken. To make decisions on the basis of superficial understanding is dishonorable for leaders. The good leader, the honorable leader, searches out the matter. But as leaders pursue truth, as they find evidence, as they crack hard cases as Solomon did, you remember, in First Corinthians, sorry, First Kings uh, chapter 3, when the, the, the young children were, were brought to him and, and the mothers uh, were claiming ownership. They may be prone to pride. But this proverb gives such balance to that circumstance that the thing that will keep us humble is that there are mysteries that we cannot solve. We understand this point. We get to the bottom of this issue that those who are under us, that they cannot fully understand why we've done this, such as the amount of research and background that we've gone into, But up above us is the God 
who is so vast, who is so great, that he's got to conceal things. There are depths to him that we cannot penetrate and know. Bishop Hall, he puts this really well and he has a a really useful phrase which I hope I I will be able to retain somewhere in, in my mind. He says, as there is a foolish wisdom, so there is a wise ignorance. He says, I would fain know all that I need and all that I may. I leave God's secrets to himself. It is happy for me, he continues, that God makes me of his court, though not of his counsel. It's that phrase that's relevant here. The wise ignorance. Good leaders are thorough in their research before they take a decision. But not all the details should be shared. Not all the details can be shared. And even if they are shared, not all the details can be understood by everyone. But godly leaders, wise leaders, those who are led should be content with a wise ignorance, trusting the decision of godly leaders. So thoroughness, is a second characteristic mentioned in Proverbs. Thirdly, vulnerableness. Perhaps this is not the best word, not the best heading, and I hope I'll be able to convey the idea that's latent in a few Proverbs that we're considering. It's a thought about leaders in their position, a position of responsibility, a position which they've been elected to, It's something that's very real for the the Tory party at this time, isn't it? In losing those two by-elections last week. Recognizing how quickly, how easily power can slip from their grasp. There is this vulnerability associated to, to leadership. And it's something that we should hold and be conscious of. And think about and address and ask the question. How can I preserve Good leadership. That people will follow us closely. That people will trust us. That we will lead well. And and Proverbs addresses this. How can you as an elder, as a deacon, last long in your office, not just surviving, but, but effectively and usefully, The answer is given here in verse 14. Care for the poor. If a king faithfully judges the poor, his throne will be established forever. Don't let your position go to your head. Don't let this distance emerge between you and your position of leadership and the poor at the bottom of the ladder. The way you'll sustain an effective leadership within the church, within the nation, is to care for the poor. 
what will rip the grip of power from a leader's hands like a South African forward ripping the ball from the hands of their opponent. The neglect, the abuse, the mistreatment of the poor. They need someone to protect them. They need someone to represent them. And if the leader doesn't do it, who else will do it? Their God loves the poor. Sure, we're poor. And he demands throughout his word that they are shown pity. This is countercultural, isn't it? Leaders think that favoring the strong, surrounding themselves with the wealthy, pumpering to the powerful, pulling in those who are influential, will prolong their dynasty. But this proverb is absolutely contrary to that. The policy that will sustain their effective leadership is caring for the poor. Wasn't this what brought down the long rule of Mrs. Thatcher? The poll tax which challenged the poor. The throne of Jesus will last forever, won't it? And one feature of that perfect and eternal reign is identified in Psalm 72, verse 12 and 13. Listen to these golden words. He delivers the needy when he calls. The poor and him who has no helper He has pity on the weak and the needy and saves the lives of the needy. The leader whose rule and position will endure and be effective is the one who loves and cares for and ministers to the poor. Proverbs identifies ways in in which a a leadership will come to to an end in in other places. For example, chapter 14, verse 28, it talks about a a lack of support for a leader. And a multitude of people is the glory of a king, but without people, a prince is ruined. Chapter 14, verse 28. The number of people led will reflect on the, the amount of honor for the leader. This is illustrated in Israel at this time, isn't it? When the prime minister went out about visiting different sites, he was booed by his own people. They they had elected him to protect their nation and he had failed them in doing this. He's without people, not in the sense that there's no people in the land of Israel, but he's without the support of the people. Without the support of the people, a leader is ruined. And the people of Israel began praising David more than Saul. The period of his effective leadership was over. Leaders in church and state were essentially servants. And remembering this is key to our effective leadership. One writer says, We are not appointed for luxury or for pleasure, 
but that as head and leader we may preside over our members as a shepherd caring for his flock, as a tree nourishing those who dwell under its shadow. This gives us insight into the glory of our heavenly king. Revelation 7 verses 9 and 10 speak about a multitude which no man can number, worshipping the lamb on the throne. From every nation and tongue and tribe and people offering their praise and homage and adoration to Jesus. And a multitude of people, the text says, is the glory of a king. What glory he will have for all eternity. Another way in which the leadership of a leader is ended is by losing his wealth. Proverbs 19 verse 66 and 7 says, Many seek the favor of a generous man, and everyone is a friend to a man who gives gifts. The next verse says, All a poor man's brothers hate him. How much more do his friends go far from him? He pursues them with words, but does not have them. And these two verses go together in verse 6 and 7 of chapter 19. For they highlight how transient leadership can be, that vulnerability that is there. A wealthy leader, it says, is followed by people. They hang onto the coattails of a leader of wealth and influence. But when that leader has nothing, his very followers and friends desert him. So a third characteristic, it's in there somewhere, isn't it? The vulnerableness of a leader. Maybe not the position elders are elders for life and, and so are deacons, but, but that vulnerableness of the effectiveness of the position. It can go. We might hold on to the position, but are we effective as elders and as deacons in the congregation? And what will make us effective is that we care for the poor. And lastly, uprightness is to mark leadership. Chapter 25, verse 4 and 5. Take away the dross from the silver, and the smith has material for a vessel. Take away the wicked from the presence of the king, and his throne will be established in righteousness. And the uprightness of a leader is seen in two ways. One is in the company that he has. The other is in the discipline that he administers. The company that he has is in this proverb in chapter 25. Good leadership is likened here to a finely modeled vessel of silver. It's finely crafted. It's attractive. It's useful like those silver spoons, plates, cups, vessels made in Chester in the 19th century. But there is something that can mar that vessel, destroy that vessel, disfigure that vessel. And it's called here dross. And so there is something, the text says, that can ruin good leadership. 
and it's sin in the, the advisors that the leader has. Those who, who promote policies, unjust causes, selfish causes, sinful causes. And such policies, the writer says here, are like dross that disfigures the good leadership. The man himself, the woman herself, is gifted, has characteristics, has strengths. But, but she's been adversely influenced by, by those round the table promoting all kinds of policies that are sinful, evil, and wicked. It's righteousness, it's uprightness that will establish the effective leadership of a good leader. And David advised Solomon on this very point, and perhaps this lies behind this gripping proverb. When David came to the end of his life, he thought about his son succeeding him, and he, he pulled him in, you remember, and he said now that there, there are situations unresolved that you'll have to deal with. You'll have to deal with Job. You'll have to deal with Adonijah. You'll have to deal with Shimei. There were wicked influences that could ruin the young, inexperienced Solomon. And Solomon listened to his father. And he removed those three men so that their influence was gone. The ineffective, good leadership, uprightness, is to mark not only the leader himself, but those closest to him. And this is the great emphasis in, in books and in pastoral theology and, and, and within the scriptures that, that leaders are characterized by piety. They might not be wealthy. They might not be in positions of power in the town, but they are godly because godliness is essential to effective leadership. And then that uprightness is indicated in the discipline. This is chapter 17, verse 26. To impose a fine on a righteous man is not good, nor to strike the noble for their uprightness. Here is the leader exercising his or her power, but doing it wrongly, unfairly. They're fining the righteous. They're striking the noble. We had that case in Northern Ireland of the, the two policemen being suspended unjustly. And the nation, rightly so, was, was up in arms about this. Because good leadership does not do that. It does not condemn the innocent. It does not deal wrongly with the upright. And this point brings us to the cross. Because here is the Son of God. Here is the sinless one. Here is Jesus, the innocent. But he has been judged by the God of heaven. He has been wounded and he has been bruised on the cross. He has been brought down to the very depths lower than any other human being has ever gone. Where is the justice here then? We know the answer, and the boys and girls tonight know the answer. Jesus has stepped into our shoes. He has taken on himself our transgressions so much that in Psalm number 40, he can talk about my sin. Jesus talks about 
my sin, his sin. He has taken our sin on himself to such a degree that he is standing in our place and taking all the judgment for us. Leadership marked by humbleness, marked by thoroughness, marked by a a sense of vulnerableness, marked by uprightness. The Apostle Paul gives us this wonderful train, doesn't he? He says in one of his letters, Corinthians, I want you people, congregation, to follow me just as I follow Christ. And that, that is the model leadership that we are to have in our family, and in our church. That the leaders follow Christ the leader. And the congregation follows the Christ-likeness in the leadership. 